Hello, and welcome to Ashurst Business Agenda. My name is Dan Brown, and I'm a partner in the energy and infrastructure practice of Ashurst, and I'm based in Brisbane. I'm really excited to share with you that this is the first episode in a series where we are exploring the 2032 Brisbane Olympics, which is forecast to deliver more than $8 billion in benefits to Queensland, including $4.6 billion in economic boost to tourism and trade, $3.5 billion in social improvements such as health, volunteering and community benefits. In today's conversation, we're going to really focus on two core themes. The underlying tenant of the entire Olympics is people, people, people. And we're going to look at the ways in which risk management can be brought in to ensure that everybody has an amazing Olympic experience. So joining me today for this podcast is Bob Walker. Bob is quite simply an amazing human, and he's a director in our risk advisory practice at Ashurst. He's got a wealth of experience delivering massive global events, and we're really grateful to have him here today to share his insights. Without further ado, let's roll into our podcast. So Bob, thank you so much for making time to join us on our podcast today, where we're going to be talking about the Brisbane Olympics. I guess from my perspective, a good place to start is really just thinking about, look, it's been three months since the announcement was made by the IOC that Brisbane has been successful in securing the 2032 Olympics. Amazingly, we've got 3,957 days until the Olympics kicks off here, um, which, which on one measure seems like a very long time. But, you know, when we think about everything that needs to be done, that's going to just absolutely fly by. And so when I take away the high-profile athletes, when I take away the massive stadia and infrastructure that needs to be built, when I take away the really glitzy and glamorous um, and well-choreographed opening and closing ceremonies, for me, I feel like the Olympics is really just about people. People, 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 um, as Brene Brown says. But I know that you've got a really rich and colourful history supporting Olympic Games and also other global games. But maybe that's a good place to start from the outset, really, is just how, how did you get involved in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney? Thanks, Dan. So how did I get involved? Sometimes I, I always, the team that was involved, we still ask ourselves that question. I was part of a small boutique consultancy in Sydney and we had carved out a bit of a niche for ourselves in emergency management, emergency preparedness, crisis management. And we'd been working with the education departments and TAFEs and universities and some venues. And we started to see as the infrastructure build for Sydney started to occur because Sydney had won the games, the venues started to pop up and we started to get more involved in helping them think through their emergency response processes and then training their staff up. And it just naturally evolved. And then an opportunity came up for us to, to get significantly involved with, uh, with Sydney uh, in the form of a whole range of different, uh, what I'd say, uh, risk management activities. And I guess for the benefit of our listeners, when we talk about risk management and risk management activities, at its core, what does that mean? Yeah, practically. 
Yeah. Oh, what a great question. For me, you know, risk is about, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? In this case, it was to put on a massive event. What are all thinking through what are all of those things that could not go to plan and trying to actually stop that in that planning process and sort of mitigate it there, or at least having some response mechanism in place to correct it if if whatever it was was to get off track. Yeah. So at risk at, at its essence is you now everything we do, we take some level of risk. It's yep. about making sure that we understand what that risk is and that we're prepared to take that risk and making sure that we've got the right level of control in place where we can. Yeah, and I imagine there's a whole bunch of reasons why we need to do those risk assessments and put in place those risk management arrangements. But would it be fair to say that in some ways, when we distill this down to its most simple, um, I use that word flippantly, actually, in the context of delivering <laughs> Olympic Games, that in, 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 if, we, if we distill that down into a number of simple concepts, I imagine really a lot of this risk management piece is all about ensuring that everybody who attends or participates in those games um, has an amazing experience. Yeah. That, 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 again, that people piece, right? Like, it, you know, I imagine we can boil it down to that, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, and it is, and you know, you and I have spoken about this before, but, you know, my belief is that the games are really all about the people. They're put on by people for people and for yeah. the community so that we, so that we can understand it. The, the issue with that is that when you have people involved in a process, there's always, the, the, there's always an element <laughs> yeah. that might not go to plan. Yeah. And, and so we yeah. have to plan for that bit, right? Yeah. And, and so that's what, that's the essence of risk and, and safety management. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Because um, at the end of the day, you're delivering something for people by the people, but by having people involved in that process, things don't go to plan. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I imagine it must have at times when you're delivering those games actually been challenging to maintain focus or keep line of sight on the fact that we need to put the people at the center of every choice decision we make around this because yeah. it's ultimately an experiential element isn't yeah. it the game yeah. um, most certainly and I would say that that was front of mind for everybody that was involved in those games whether you were employed in one of the uh, venues or employed by SOCOG to actually Yep. deliver something or whether you were a volunteer we have to remember at a at an olympic games you have the largest volunteer workforce that ever gets assembled yeah. uh, to come together for two weeks of of the of the games and then for the paralympic games too and we should we should never forget that they, they yes. cross over the over the two and so that's monumental uh, that's a lot of people right yeah and so it takes good leadership and and to make sure that it is front of mind i always remember um, so Sandy Holloway, who was the chief executive officer for SOCOG, was a real people person. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, th I learned that lesson from him 20 odd years ago that I had absolutely maintained front and centre in my practice and how I've managed going forward. It's about knowing your people and trusting your people, but setting the right direction and giving them some, some, some latitude to be able to do that. Sandy used to walk the floor on a Friday in, in that main building where all of the planning for the most amazing games uh, was occurring with some of the smartest people in yeah. the world yeah. that had come together to do it. And he would know them by name 
He wow. would know what their families were up to. And he just created a culture and an environment that was inclusive well before its time that just drove everybody on that singular path to do the best they could do for those games. Yeah. Yeah. That's an immense burden, but also privilege in some ways, isn't it? To to have that role and to be able to discharge that role in a way where you're effectively taking everybody along for the journey because yeah. you have to, right? And such an amazing environment because we hadn't done it for such a long time. Melbourne was the games before. It was the yeah. biggest biggest infrastructure build in the country. It was, the, as I said, you know, the, the biggest volunteer workforce coming together. It was the biggest international workforce coming together to pull us together. And Sandy and his team were actually making sure all those pieces fit. I'm still in awe. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's a really important distinction around, it was, I think it was 56, we had the Melbourne Olympics, 2000, we get to Sydney Olympics. The world had changed substantially yeah. uh, in that period of time, and not just the world, but Australia as a, as a growing nation um, had changed fundamentally. And, and that's probably a nice lead into my next question for you is 20 years later, in today, where we are today, we, we find out we have the Brisbane Olympics in another almost 4,000 days. How has the world changed since Sydney? How is it likely to change? It's <laughs> like a double barrel question, sorry. Um, but effectively, what I'm trying to understand is from a risk perspective, from, from the, the core of the work that you do, how is that going to impact the ability to deliver the Olympics here in Brisbane in terms of the way that the world has changed. And, and I guess the last 18 months has proved things can happen um, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. But yeah, how will that affect the ability to deliver the games? Yeah, so, so thanks for the, for the big questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would say two things. So it, it certainly changed almost immediately. We know that in 2001, there was a an event in, in, in America that changed the world forever, so 9-11. Yep. And so we looked to Salt Lake City Games where, where I was part of that following year, the security posture had just changed considerably. So we'll never retreat back from that posture. That posture is there yep. and there is a very mature mechanism in place now that you know all countries have a have an understanding of what that needs to look like and how they cooperate on that. And so that's probably out of my remit to, to really yeah. talk about as well. But so, so there is that security posture that's there. I, I think, you know, you've got technology that's changed. You've got people's expectations have changed. There's a whole range of things that have changed for us as a nation from 2000 to when, to when Brisbane puts it on. The one thing that hasn't changed too much is the people. Yeah. Right? So people are still people. And they, they want to come along and they want to be part of something. They want to be engaged and they want to own a piece of it. And whether that's by volunteering or whether that's by being a spectator or just being proud that it's in their state or in their country, everyone has a, a level of wanting to be involved in the games. And so, yes, there's been some significant change and there's been some cultural change in Australia as well. But at the heart of that still is people. And so that still means that our... Uh, our risk identification and assessment process fundamentally has matured, but is still there and designed to help people enjoy the games and for the games yeah. to go on. Yeah, and I guess that's a really good sort of segue into the next line of questioning around this, because you're right, like 
fundamentally, the thing that hasn't changed is that the games are all about the people. And yet, while we might be spending more time in our phones than we did in back in 2000 um, <laughs> and using a whole lot of different technology, the other thing that I guess needs to be balanced with that is potentially at first blush, there's this overarching desire to go, all right, we just need to build and deliver the infrastructure in order to have the best games ever and the best experience ever. But in fact, like, how do we actually go about in a very mindful way of delivering the best Olympics ever, but ensuring that the work that's done, the infrastructure that's developed is an enduring legacy that doesn't become a white elephant, that doesn't become mothballed, and that actually continues to add value for future, perhaps generations, off the back of that Olympic success. Because imagine from even from a risk management perspective around things like redundancy, that's got to be a really tough role for you guys to be able to think about all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, a lot of that sits back in the business case that each of the each of the countries and host cities put together to be able to demonstrate there's that cost benefit analysis in actually being the host to, you know, what does that deliver for our community from a games perspective or what's the enduring legacy that it delivers? And I'm 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 sure that government would have had that front and centre yeah. uh, on their mind as to what it is. And if we, you know, if we look to Sydney and and look to the stadia that are that are there now, although 20 years on, there's been some talk in Sydney about demolishing that stadium. It's 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 had its time and and yeah. gone forward, but but that that all of the stadia that were developed at that time and and for Sydney, the games were not just hosted in Sydney. There were all of the qualifying uh, events and all of the test events were around the country. So the yeah. actual spread of infrastructure uplift was not just to the host city but actually out further so and i can remember going to it was bruce stadium in those days in canberra yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, the and, and <laughs> so, yeah exactly <laughs> right so so it, it did it, it 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 actually was a lot further than just uh, just that city thinking about the role that you had in sydney and having to think about all of those things around risk but also future proofing um, a lot of the the processes, procedures, and also infrastructure that was built. Let's fast forward to the Brisbane experience. Pretend for a moment that you know you're leading the risk piece on that. What what are the sorts of considerations that are going to be front of mind? Like, it's like I guess in some ways it's the old saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? But what are yeah. some of the priorities? What would be some of the priorities for you if you were leading the charge on the risk piece around delivering the Brisbane Olympics? Wow. That is a big question. It, but uh, it's, it's, it's fun. I suppose fundamentally you need to understand what the expectation is around delivery. What are we delivering and where? And, and then winding that back as to understanding what's the resource and resource infrastructure commitments for those. What are the issues and or risks that sit around those? How do we control that? Yep. And always, what's our plan B? Yep. Uh, and when you've got, you know, you, you're so far out that actually nothing is set in stone. And, you know, so, so yeah. there, is all, there is absolutely going to be a meandering path through that process of bringing together the right level of infrastructure, the right level of technology. I would even say that the technology that's going to be used in Brisbane is not even developed yet. Yeah, that's right. incredible to think like that, isn't it? But it's true. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you, I think you've got to keep yourself open, know what the big pieces are, know how they connect together, 
know what the risk is if they don't connect together and get good people around you that actually understand that intimately and can help you bring it together. Yeah, right. And like, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, when you reflect on the role that you did in Sydney, like what sort of numbers of people are we talking about on a daily basis having to be successfully moved around Sydney um, or a venue? Like what, 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 what's the magnitude? So, so I think from memory and, you know, it's a while ago, the largest day, the largest people movement, if you like, was uh, there was one day when the Sydney uh, uh, Olympic, um, gee, I can't remember the, the, term, the precinct, um, was um, full. So the stadium was full for the morning session. Um, the um, showgrounds and or the diamond pavilions, as they were called, they were, they were full. So everything was full and there was a changeover. And that uh, during that changeover, there was a, effectively half a million people in that precinct, either coming wow. out of a venue or going into a venue. And so wow. you have to remember there's public transport has to bring those people in and take those people out. And it's, it was just amazing. And the reality is if you put half a million people together, somebody's going to die. Yeah. It's just the yeah. law of averages. You've got so yeah. many people together, not from any nefarious means. And obvious, and they did. And so, yeah. but you've got to, you know, you're thinking through that process about by bringing 500,000 people together, what's going to happen? What do I need to be prepared for? Our emergency yeah. services and lots of layers of planning. There was, there was nine layers of contingency planning and, and testing for all of the events um, and all of the venues in the lead up to, you know, actually hosting the game. So there's a lot of preparation around that stuff. Yeah. 500,000 people is a lot of people, right? That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, there is going to be queues and there are going to be going to be long queues while you're waiting to get on a bus or waiting to get onto a train. So part of the control strategy is making sure that you have um, spectator services people or, or visitor interaction type people, people with big personalities standing out the front, clearly visible in their Olympic uniform, engaging with people and keeping them happy. And more, you know, all of those sorts of things to take their mind off the fact that they might be standing in that line for an hour. Yeah, you know that's that's incredible to like think about five hundred thousand people like that for anybody that's been to the G on Grand Final weekend. You know, you've got ninety odd hundred thousand people there. So moving around Sydney at any given point in time during the Olympics, you had five times the capacity of yeah. the MCG. That's mind blowing. If you think about risk management, you then say, all right, so we know that because we know the capacities of our venues, we know the scheduling, we know that's going to happen. All right, what do we need to do? Yeah. What are the plans in place? So that's that's the risk management process. Right? Yeah, but, and, but that's the juice, right? And that's the juice I'd really love to know more about. And maybe, again, this is a really hard question, but what does that planning look like? Like, where do you start? How do you even begin to contemplate drafting a single plan, let alone, I think you mentioned nine contingency plans. Yeah, so nine layers of planning. Yeah, Yeah. like how do you start? Where do you start? So you start at the big picture. Yep. And you drop it down. Yeah, okay. And then, you know, everything has to interconnect at some point. And so that's why it takes so long. So if you start with a big picture that says we have 12 days of events, during those 12 days we're going to have, or 14 days, we're going to have people here here, here, and here. We know that because that's the schedule. Then start winding it back from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You have to also remember that it's not like we haven't, we're not doing this already. So as you say, the, the MCG and the, the grand final there is a, is a great example. So we've got people that are really well skilled in bringing 100,000 people into and out of a big metropolitan city regularly for those sorts of events, right? Yeah. And we've got, and you've got Melbourne Cup and around the country. And so it's about tapping into those networks the planning that sits below that, that's happening now. Those people are all sort of pulled up into assisting in that planning. Yeah. So maybe this is just my simple mind, but is the order of magnitude around the planning so much different when you're looking at 100,000 versus 500,000 or is fundamentally are the issues broadly aligned? Broadly aligned. Yeah. 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 There's yeah, a bit I more guess... complexity to it. Yeah. Right? But, uh, but broadly, you can roll that up. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess turning to things that are probably not so positive, what will unravel the Olympics? What will unravel the, the, the best games ever type moniker that we would we, we know will, I was going to say we hope would, but we know will be ascribed to the Brisbane Olympics? From a risk management perspective or a risk perspective, what are the issues that might unravel that or, or make the games not so great an outcome for people? So I think it is fair to say that you can't plan for every contingency. Yeah. So stuff will happen. Yeah. So you have to you have to be agile in your approach. Yeah. And I, I can remember really early on in the piece, in the testing, uh, and so in some of the test events and the volunteers for the test events picked up their uniforms, gone home, and they'd come back the next day in their uniform. And by the end of that day, they all had rashes because oh, no. <laughs> there was something wrong in the manufacturing process oh, no. the, that particular component of the of the uniform. So yeah. you don't plan for that. No. Right? So you have to be able to, you've got to have that agility to be able to, to respond and say, right, they're out and they're in. And then you, you look back at that and you go, well, thankfully we didn't have just one manufacturer of the uniforms. We looked at our yeah. continuity or our contingency and said, well, we need to have a couple of manufacturers. And so... Yeah. That yeah. was pulled and the other stuff was was put in. Yeah. So does this mean, um, by extension, you're the kind of guy that's got about four contingency plans for every day of your, of your life or every just, aspect did, of your life? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I know we had in um, a, a couple of years ago here in South Australia, we had a statewide power outage. Yeah. And, and my wife took her about three hours to get out of the car park and get home. I, I'd been home that day and... I'd got the camper trailer set up and I'd got our cooker going and the batteries and, the, and dinner was on just as normal. She goes, yeah. oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, look, I, I guess turning to something that's a little more serious for a moment, but I think is absolutely fundamental to the success of any Olympics, but especially the Brisbane Olympics, is the involvement of the First Nations people. Um, I know it's something that you're really passionate about. It's something that our business, our firm here at Ashes, yeah. we're are super um, passionate about it. And I know that there's been criticism of other games in the past around perhaps insensitivity or mm. overlooking the First Nations people. And I guess is it, potentially there's a risk piece, but, it, but it's actually more fundamental piece around acknowledgement, involvement and respect. Like what are the sorts of things yeah. that we really need to focus on to ensure that this super important and fundamental aspect of our Australian culture and society mm. 
is acknowledged and respected in the right way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, you know, my view was that in Sydney at that particular time, the community had a particular view and, and our First Nations people were involved in the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony. But what stood out for me was that, so then I didn't see any Indigenous faces in the volunteers or I didn't see any Indigenous faces in the leadership teams. And I think that has to change, right? And here's our opportunity to say, we've got a number of years now, let's set a program up that is going to actually do that. You know, this this should be something that we should all be really jumping behind and saying, all right, how do we, how do we as a firm, well, we know as a firm, we're very committed to that, but as a nation, how do we actually use the Brisbane Games as a catalyst to actually help elevate and give our First Nations people a voice by giving you know employment yeah and yeah. skills and there's a there's a big enough period of time now that we could do that yeah 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 and i guess it really ties back into that conversation we had a little earlier on uh, the podcast which was the games have to be more than just that couple of weeks um, yeah. period it, it has to be about an enduring legacy primarily for the immediate community um, and the nation but also more broadly for everybody that's touched by the Olympics. And so it seems to me to be a natural part of that legacy that we honour and respect our First Nations people uh, in, in, the, in the most appropriate way, given the significance and importance of the Games. I think so. And I think it creates a great opportunity for us to think about creative ways of actually doing that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, when, when I was doing some of the background research around the Olympics and um, looking for content to drive the podcasts, I was really heartened to see public announcements and pronouncements by the state of Queensland acknowledging the important role of First Nations people. Um, and look, that's, that, that's a, a small step, but yeah. you know, the rubber needs to hit the road, I guess. And yeah, I'm going to be really excited to see how that, that unfolds. Yeah, and look, and hopefully as a firm, we get the opportunity to partner in that. Yeah, that'd be amazing if we could do yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, Bob, we've been talking a little bit today around the Olympics not just being a two-week ordeal, but it's really about a legacy piece. And I imagine during that process of helping to deliver the 2000 Olympics, notwithstanding the depth and breadth of your experience and knowledge, you would have actually learnt a great deal but from a, again, from that legacy perspective, what are some of the learnings? What are some of the tools that you took away from the Olympics that you've been able to implement moving forward that have benefited others outside of that pure games delivery environment? Yeah, that's really interesting, Dan, because because I think you're right. I mean, that legacy is not just about the Olympic Games and the, and the infrastructure and the people that came to see it, but it's about the people that put it on and the people that had the opportunity to actually work in those games. And so for me, you know, it was almost like the Olympic Games of risk management for me. Uh, <laughs> and it's continued to, to give back to me throughout my career. So, you know, I went on from that to, to the Rugby World Cup, to um, Salt Lake City Winter Olympics and to a couple of other events. And core as to, to what it is that I do in my, in my career has still been fundamentally coming back to understanding risk and yeah. how to actually break it apart into manageable pieces so that organisations and people can understand it and then manage it and move forward. And I think... Probably the most recent case of that for me would be, obviously, 
we've we've got this thing called COVID nineteen at the moment, and and certainly in early um, twenty twenty that became that became a thing, and I got very seriously involved in um, some risk planning around COVID at a government level. So I did I did a fair bit of that, and I was really bringing to to four all of that risk management skill that I learned during the Olympics and has stayed with me right throughout my career because risk is about being able to to get on with and get back to where you need to be safely and with with the South Australian Film Authority they came and spoke to me about trying to get the film sector in South Australia up and running again in order to create employment at the back end as as our first wave of COVID started to die down uh, last year. So we applied a risk management approach. We developed a risk assessment tool. Uh, that particular tool was we then you helped the, the authority use to actually undertake a risk assessment for a production, which then actually attracted the funding Wow. Because the risk assessment had been done and created something like 300 jobs in South wow. Australia for the filming of that particular thing, when the entire film sector globally had been shut down. Our tool was then, you know, that particular tool uh, would then became the largest download for a risk assessment tool in the film sector anywhere at that time. And it was, you know, it's been continues to be used, I suppose, to to look at the issue around COVID understand the risks and develop a mitigation plan and a COVID-safe plan out of the back of that. So risk management continues to to give. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And it's all done from South Australia. You know, that's yes. amazing and impacted the global um, film industry. Yeah. But look, I feel like I need to apologise, Bob, because at the outset, what I should have done was introduced you as the absolute undisputed world champion of risk management. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll know sure for next idea. time. <laughs> uh, Bob, it has been an absolute and genuine pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your really amazing um, insights into your experience, not just delivering the 2000 Olympics, but all of your other experience around the risk management piece. Um, I've learned an incredible lot from you. So thank you so much, mate. Dan, thank you. I mean, this is the first time that I've been asked to participate in a podcast and I did my own risk assessment before I came on, right? So I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased to see that it went well and, and, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity and the openness of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much for listening to Ashurst Business Agenda. We really do hope that you found this episode both worthwhile and insightful. To learn more about our podcast channels, please visit ashos.com forward slash podcasts. And to ensure you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Your insights and feedback are super important to us. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Business Agenda, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. 
You can listen and subscribe to Legal Outlook and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.